0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror, brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded on the 29th of January 2018 at approximately 10 past 10 London time. Uh, If you want to find out more about uh, the work we do here at the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre and any of our publications, any of our upcoming research or any of our upcoming podcasts, be sure to follow us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L and tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. Or you can go to our website, uel.ac.uk slash teorc. Okay, so for today's podcast, it's my great pl- privilege and honor to welcome uh, Professor Richard English. Richard is a professor of politics and pro-vice-chancellor at Queen's University, Belfast, where he's also a Distinguished Professorial Fellow in the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice. During 2011 to 2016, he was Wardlaw Professor of Politics in the School of International Relations and Director of the Handel Centre for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence, the CSTPV, at the University of St. Andrews. He's the author of eight books, including Armed Struggle, A History of the IRA, Terrorism, How to Respond, and Does Terrorism Work? A History. He is a frequent media commentator on terrorism and he is a fellow of the British Academy, a member of the Royal Irish Academy and a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and honorary fellow of Keeble College, Oxford and an honorary professor at the University of St. Andrews. And he has also recently been awarded a CBE in the New Year's honours list. Richard, thanks you so much for uh, being on today's podcast.
1: Delighted, John. Very good to join you.
0: Richard, so we start this podcast off uh, by asking all of our guests, how did you get involved in this area of research? So
1: I first became interested in the study of terrorism when I was an undergraduate at Oxford. I was a history student in the mid-1980s, and I was interested in the tension between nationalism and Marxism. And I'd been born in Belfast. And so the case study that I chose was the case study of the IRA in the 20th century, and the left wing of the IRA. So my first interest in terrorism really came from being interested in other phenomena from which terrorism in some ways arose. I suppose that's influenced the way I've thought about it in subsequent years. I was interested in the way in which a particular version of a nationalist movement, the Irish Republican Nationalist Movement, dealt with the legitimacy of violence, which they understood to be entirely fair in their pursuit of an independent Ireland, but also the tension within that nationalism between rival views of the kind of society you produce for the left wing of the IRA, very much a socialist or Marxist Ireland, for other nationalists not. So my first interest came as a student, it was as a historian, it was being interested in nationalism and Marxism, and the way in which terrorism arose from that, and it had initially very much an irish focus.
0: And when, with your um, with your background, being born in Belfast and studying history, were you um, were you bringing in your own personal experiences into your analysis, or was it was it was it reflective of what you would experience or what you were reading in the books and what you were learning about?
1: I suppose my view would be that everybody brings some kind of prior positioning to the study of history and the study of politics and the study of any subject. My mother was from Belfast, her parents, her father had been from Dublin, her mother had been from Belfast, so there was an Irish twist to my background. As my accent indicates, I didn't grow up in Ireland, I grew up overwhelmingly in England, but we were always back and forward, particularly to the north, and so I suppose there was an interest in Ireland which Gave a personal inflection to what I was studying. What I've always tried to do, though readers of my books will judge how far I've succeeded, what I've always tried to do is to study those who are not just the people to whom I'm politically related. So my mother's background was Protestant Irish, but I spent most of my life studying people from the Catholic nationalist community, uh, particularly in the Republican tradition. So I suppose one thing was trying to study those who were at odds with my own people. Uh, I also think that part of what you try to do as a scholar is to get as many mutually interrogatory sources for your work as you can, and where possible, to allow the evidence to take you in directions which you might not necessarily like. So, for example, with my book on the IRA, I ended up being slightly more empathetic towards them than my upbringing would have led me to be. So it wasn't that I grew up in Belfast and was in, enmeshed in the troubles. I did see it firsthand when we were over here in Belfast from where I'm speaking, but it wasn't something that was an imminent part of my life every day. Having said that, there was a sense that I was both... Interested in it because of my background, and I suppose trying to ensure that as far as possible I was scholarly and as dispassionate as one could be, despite having some kind of relatives who were involved in the place which I was studying.
0: Yeah, and the, it's it's always these this balancing that we we have to do as scholars as well, and it, it's it's reflective in the in the works that you've picked um, as being influential. I always ask each of our listeners uh, or each of our uh, interviewees to to list some pieces that have been influential on you. and One of the ones that you've picked has been Eric Hobsbawm's On History, published in 1997. And I can can hear in reading your writings and and hear when I've heard you talk the influence that this has had. For the listeners, what exactly was this piece saying? um, And what did you really gain from it?
1: So if I had to pick one scholar who's influenced me more than any other, it would be Eric Hobsbawm, the late great Marxist historian. And the things I liked about his work and about this book on history and what it reflected include his commitment to the idea that historians should always be looking at major transformations. His idea is that whatever it is you're studying about a particular period or place of history, you should be asking about the great transformations in human history, the major themes, the world historical forces. So one approach which I've always tried to bring to the study of terrorism, whether it's Irish or in other settings, is to think what is it about this which, far beyond that particular place, far beyond that particular episode, should be of world historical significance. And I think Hobsbawm certainly far more effectively than I've ever done. Hobsbawm managed to do this. In other words, whatever he was writing about, he was always with an eye to the world historical forces. I suppose another thing which Hobsbawm impressed me with was that this was a man of deep political beliefs, somebody who had joined the Communist Party decades before I encountered his work, who remained a committed Marxist, but who tried in his writings to step beyond the straitjacket of a particular ideology. And so whether or not one's of the left or the right, I think Hobsbawm's work and respect because of its scholarly authority. I think the other thing is about Hobsbawm, the range of what he endeavoured to study, I think, across many different countries, across many different periods, trying to engage with very local things, with the violent, but also with changing patterns. So in his later years he was interested in things that were very contemporaneous, and I suppose that breadth of curiosity on his part inspired me as well. So partly it was the grand transformations, partly it was the attempt to discipline your own politics, and partly it was a kind of enormous range and a hunger. I mean, my sense from Hobsbawm was that right at the end of his life, he was just as passionately enthusiastic about studying history as he had been as a, as a student at Cambridge in the first place. And all of that I found to be, and still find to be, inspiring. He's probably the historian whose works I most frequently take off the shelf when I'm looking for inspiration. And on history, is very much a collection of works which reflects his thoughts about what it is that historians should be doing and can be doing and are doing. And I think all of that remains a big inspiration for me.
0: Yeah, and, and the fact that you're coming from a historical background and very unlike um, a lot of our other guests on this podcast um, gives you this this insight that that other researchers of terrorism studies really don't have. Do you think that currently there... How do you feel we are at getting a historical understanding of, of terrorism as a whole and specific conflicts? Or do you feel that that's been ignored too much? My own
1: view, John, would be that historians as a tribe have not engaged with the study of terrorism in the way that some other disciplines have so in the vast growth of post 9-11 terrorism studies political scientists economists psychologists have been collectively far more engaged than historians if you think about where the centers for the study of terrorism tends to be housed in universities or many of the prominent people including people whom you'll be interviewing for this podcast series it's largely not in history departments that the centre of gravity lies. And I think in some ways that's a a pity, not because historians have a superior understanding, but it is, it seems to me, the case that historians have something particular to say. Many of the conflicts from which terrorism has arisen can only, I think, be understood if you look at the very long pasts and the tangled historical roots, whether that's Israel-Palestine, Ireland, which we've been mentioning, Spain and the Basque Country, Colombia, clearly the struggle between various jihadist groups and the West. So in all of those cases, it seems to me that if if we start with the assumption that terrorism is a recent outgrowth or a recent phenomenon we won't really get to the heart of what will explain it i also think that possibly not looking at it as historically as we might tends to exaggerate the degree of how much things can be done in other words i've always argued with counter-terrorism and with responding to terrorism that we need to be realistic about what can be done so if you think about for example the israel-palestine conflict conflicts over the political and religious implications of power in Jerusalem have been going on at least since the book of Jeremiah. So that's a rather humbling reality in terms of thinking about what you can change during the course of one US presidency, for example, or during the course of one Israeli government. So I suppose the historical approach has an analytical aspect to it. Probably we could do more than we have done with that, but I think it's also partly the fact that historians collectively have not engaged in this in the way that I think some other disciplines understandably and and rather admirably have done.
0: Yeah, and we can see this coming through in your work especially two pieces that we'll be talking about later terrorism how to respond and does terrorism work a history we can really see this this emphasis on the needs and um, to understand the history of individual terrorism conf- terrorist conflicts as well as broader uh, broader terrorist campaigns as well but when we look specifically at what you would be most uh most famous for most well known for it's that study of, of ireland and the one of the history uh, pieces, historical pieces that you have picked as being most influential, which is highly influential for so many scholars uh, of political violence in Ireland, is Charles Townsend's 84 piece, Political Violence in Ireland. Um, what, uh, I, I suppose it goes without saying what Charles Townsend has contributed for many people, but what do you feel that this piece in particular uh, contributes uh, to our understanding of of politi- of. This history of political violence across the island of Ireland?
1: Charles's Political Violence in Ireland was a powerful influence on me when I was a student at Oxford. The book came out while I was there. I bought it, read it, was absorbed in it, reread it, and found it powerful for a number of reasons. One was but he did take the long view. So the book is subtitled Government and Resistance Since 1848. So in the mid-1980s, when people were understandably interested in what the IRA was doing in its campaign then, it seemed to me that Charles was saying we need to look at the deep roots of this. I think he also tried to understand political violence as such. So it was trying to look at the dynamics of what was happening in Ireland and government responses to it, but with an eye to the ways in which scholars around the world had been looking at other cases of political violence so there was a kind of honesty that what you were dealing with was a particular version of a global phenomenon i also liked charles's dispassionate forensic approach that he didn't approach it primarily emotionally he approached it not to condemn or to praise, but to try to explain, and I found that very refreshing, and it was one of the first books which really influenced me on Ireland, but also one of the first books that influenced me on thinking about political violence and how governments respond to it. And again, I think because the book looked at resistance and to government, it drew attention early on to something which I've tried to deal with in my own work, which is the, the mutually shaping relationship between state action and non-state action. In other words, I don't think you could understand non-state terrorism without understanding its relationship with state action prior and post. And in that sense, I think Political Violence in Ireland by Charles Townsend was a model for what I've, however, failingly tried to do, to look at it rather than just keeping an eye on the terrorists, to look at what states do and how states react and how that action shapes future activity by non-state resistors or rebels. So for all of those reasons, Charles's political violence in Ireland was an inspiration. I then went and did my PhD working with him as my supervisor and have continued to be close to him since. And that book was the first of his books that I read. And like all his other books, it's been a a powerful source of historical insight and acumen.
0: Certainly is. It certainly is. And it was, as I said, it was published in 1984. And this was at a a hugely significant time in, uh, during the Troubles. Um, what kind of reaction was it? What do you feel it was getting within that context, getting that non-emotional analysis of uh, political violence in Ireland uh, during a time of huge emotions and huge uh, partisanship about what was going on? What reaction was a book like this getting at that time? The book got a very good
1: scholarly reaction to it, and people recognised its importance in terms of its originality, its deeply researched quality, and its attempt to explain very difficult things. I think the difficulty in the mid-1980s was that it was very hard to have any kind of immediate effect on the understandably sharp-edged emotions on all sides in Northern Ireland and Britain and Ireland more generally that the violence and counter-violence was producing. So I think the effects of this kind of work probably took a long time to work themselves out. So my sense is that a book like Charles' is from the mid-1980s. The effect of that and other books probably worked itself out through things like the books and studies that people in 1990s, Queen's University Belfast, were reading who were then coming to political age at a different period. In other words, I think there was a cumulative sense that understanding the complexity of the political violence in the Northern Troubles was something which would be resistant to easy answers so those who said we've just got to defeat the IRA or those who said we've just got to wait until the IRA win neither side seems plausible if you look at the kind of things that Charles is studying it's not the case I think that in the 1980s this kind of book suddenly changed things I think it is the case that shelf after shelf of books pointing to the tangled roots of the northern conflict probably pointed towards the logic of a long-term messy compromise of the kind that the peace process eventually produced and I do think when you look at what prisoners read when they were in jail, what Republicans and other politicians will talk about having read. There is a sense that reading uncomfortable truths about complexity played one part in shifting politics away from certainties and victory towards a kind of messy compromise, which ultimately is where I think the Northern Troubles were always likely to end up. Mm.
0: And it's it's something that we're going to get onto uh, in a lot more depth when we talk about your your book, uh, Armed Struggle, The History of the IRA. But before that, I want to to pick up on that final piece that you've picked and it's it's moving away from your uh, focus on on uh, your background in history and moving away from your uh, primary focus on Ireland and Northern Ireland but looking um, at your growing interest uh, in um, terrorism in general and you've picked Martha Crenshaw's piece explaining terrorism. Why out of all the the pieces on on terrorism? Why why was it this piece that was uh, most influential for you?
1: So I've long admired Martha's work. I think together with Bruce Hoffman, Martha Crenshaw is arguably the greatest and most influential of terrorism scholars as such. What I like about her work, well there's an awful lot that I like about it, but what I like about her work includes her capacity to take on, many years ago, some of the really big, questions in terrorism and try calmly and in a scholarly fashion to deal with them. The concept of terrorism dealing with definitions, the causes of terrorism dealing with why it happens, the question of how terrorist organization develops, the psychological importance of understanding those dynamics of what terrorism involves, how counterterrorism works or doesn't work and why. In other words, she took on what seems to me to be some of the really big questions, but she also did it from the basis of having initially gone through a case study route. And again, as with Bruce Hoffman, it seems to me both of these scholars started out with a case study and worked out from there. So Martha's initial work had been on Algeria, a very important case study, but then she broadened out to look at these wide-angled questions. So I think many of the things that scholars post-9-11 have been wrestling with in much larger numbers come back to some of the things that Martha addressed in terms of what terrorism is, what it's not, why it happens, how it's organised, how we respond to it, how difficult that is. So i found that her work repeatedly is in tune with the kind of wiser bits of the literature, and she's been a powerful influence for many years on the field, and I think repeatedly has had an influence on her students, obviously, but also through her books. And I think Explaining Terrorism brings together a lot of these big questions and her very powerful and persuasive answers to them. And significantly, her answers are not easy answers. She never turns out with an answer that says things are straightforward. She never says if you do this, things will be solved. She recognizes the difficulties involved in all of these big questions. But on causation, on definition, on consequences, on response, the big questions in the study of terrorism, one of the first people I would always direct my students to would be Martha Crenshaw. And the book to which I would initially direct them now is Explaining Terrorism.
0: Yeah, it's it's a great piece, and you haven't shied away from the big questions either yourself. As the title of uh, one of your most recent books does, terrorism work? Uh, it points out it's a uh, we we need to not just we we need to be able to to tackle these questions, and we need to be able to address them in this this calm uh, this calm manner that people like Martha and yourself and others others have done as well. So these were the pieces that have influenced you, and I'm sure you could have picked. Many, many more, but the main concentration of these this podcast series is to concentrate on your own work. And the first uh, piece of yours that you picked, I'm sure actually it was difficult to pick which of your own pieces to put forward as well, but the first piece uh, that you picked was uh, Arm Struggle, The History of the IRA. And this is a piece, I was doing a in prep for this podcast, I picked out my copy of this and it was just, uh, I think nearly every page had pieces, it's huge sections underlined and, and for me to go back to later on. It was, it was, a, it was a book that was hugely, hugely influential on me during my research, so I was delighted that you, you picked this as well. In my recollection, it came out pretty much around the same time that Ed Maloney had his piece out, Secret History uh, of the IRA. So there was a competition in, in the bookshops there for, for books on the IRA. So what was it with this book that uh, you were trying to achieve that others uh, hadn't done in their analysis of the IRA?
1: What I tried to do with the book was to approach the IRA as you would approach any other historical topic. In other words, with a movement to ask what is it that they did, why did they do it, what were they trying to achieve, and how can we assess that on the basis of the widest range of evidence. There had been a lot of good books, a lot of very good books, on the IRA before, and Ed Maloney's journalistic account, as you say, came out in the same period as my own, slightly before *Armed um, Struggle* came out, and I think it's a book which I like very much as well. But what I tried to do was to approach it as an historian rather than, as in the case of Ed, a high-grade journalist, and I tried to approach it on the basis of saying, if we look at all the archives we can get our access to, if we do the interviews, if we look at government statements, if we look at the literature that's there, fiction films, poetry, sculpture, everything we can, every kind of source you can look up for the IRA. And let's assume as much neutrality as we can in looking at the history of the provisional IRA, the roots behind them historically, the consequences of their activities. Let's not assume they're villains or heroes, but try and do a calm job dispassionately addressing them. What's the kind of answer we come up with? And I tried to approach it in that spirit, which I was slightly anxious about, because The IRA, at the time that I published the book in 2003, there was still violence going on involving them. During my time living in Northern Ireland, the IRA had been involved in killings in the city in which I lived. I knew people who'd been involved. I knew people who'd been targeted by them. So it was kind of close up to my own life, but I thought this passionate analysis was the distinctive thing an historian could do. And what pleased me about the response to the book was that while not everybody liked it, there was a sense that people from the Republican to the unionist, from the critical to the engaged, recognised that I tried to be fair to the organisation, that I tried to take them seriously and that in explaining what they had tried to do, I didn't suggest that they were irrational fanatics, but nor did I suggest that their rationality meant they were necessarily right. And in the end, As you know, the the conclusion of the book is that I'm not really persuaded by the IRA's justification for their campaign of violence, but nor do I think that casually dismissing it is something which we can get away with either politically or analytically. So I was trying to be as calm as I could be. I I suppose I tried to think if I was studying something which was in the 15th century and had no political charged. How would I go about getting the sources? How would I go about trying to ask questions? And as far as possible, could I do with that with the IRA? So I tried to keep my emotions out of it. And it was a painful book to write because it involved studying a lot of stuff which was very bloodstained. It involved a lot of Tension that involved a lot of time trying to get interviews and then dealing with people whom I'd interviewed and trying to get access to archive material which wasn't always easy but having said that it was a book which at the end I felt was my best shot at being fair-minded to one of the most enduring organisations that's carried out what many people would call terrorism.
0: Yeah and I I think you, you really did achieve what you set out to do. I think it's it's probably one of the best if not the best books on, uh, on the provisional IRA and its origins and this the range of sources that you bring in really really make it it shows the the work that you went into i'm sure you you were pretty much living in the linen hall library for a long period of time during that time that period but it was it was an ex it's a really excellent piece of work and i would really recommend anyone with an interest in the in the northern irish conflict or any other uh any other paramilitary conflict to, to to have a look at it as well it's it's an excellent piece and within this you give uh, give voice to the people who were active within uh, within the IRA. We we see uh, we hear hear from them about what their justifications were. And you mentioned it there about about getting them again uh, get, about getting them to talk and uh, chatting with them about this. And um, what kind of reaction were you getting at first when you were approaching them uh, during this period about doing a, a book on the on the history of the IRA?
1: The thing which I tried to stress was first of all that anything that I would quote from them, I would check with them before I did so that it accurately reflected their views. So I made clear to them I wasn't trying to get them to say things which they would regret being quoted on because I think that makes it into proper evidence and that I think reassured people. So I always would send people quotations saying I want to quote this, does it accurately reflect your view? And I think that was a certain reassurance. The other thing I stressed with them was that it wasn't going to be a book that was hagiographical or condemnatory. It was going to be a book which was historical and scholarly. In my sense, from everybody who did speak to me and from the movement as a whole was that they quite welcomed, I'm sure they disagreed with much that I've written, but they quite welcomed the fact that somebody was trying to treat seriously what they had been doing and to put it into historical context. So I found them to be, in fact, I found interviewees on all sides to be welcoming of the approach that I took. Now, having said that, of course, there will be things that I've written that people on all sides will have disagreed with, and I fully respect that. But I think that what they tried to do was to say, let's give voice to our understanding of what we did and let's give voice to what we were trying to achieve and I did try to allow their voices to breathe through the book so that there was a vividness and I think long after people have lost interest in what Richard English has to say I hope some of the things that I've put on record from people from all levels of the organisation will inform how people remember this bloodstained period of, of Ireland's past because I wanted to allow those voices to come out in such a way that anyone who's interested in it could get access to what people really thought. And I found people very reflective. I found people candid. I tended to find that people didn't have overly simplistic views anymore. I tended to find that people were, were kind of trying to reflect on what had happened because of the serious nature of it. So it was an enjoyable experience doing the interviews, and I think then tying that in with other kinds of sources, the archives, as you kindly mentioned, at the Linen Hall and various other places, the government publications, and, of course, interviews with people who'd been involved in in unionist politics and in the RUC as well. So trying to get all sorts of pictures of things so that a rounded historical picture could emerge. And I think on the shelf of books on the IRA, because there is now a long shelf, including your own distinguished work, I think there is a possibility now for people to get access perhaps more than any other conflict which has generated terrorism, to get access to a wide variety of scholarly opinions, but also of first-hand voices. And I suppose if the terrorism literature allows for people's voices to come out openly, then it's doing something of high value for for all of us, I hope.
0: Yes, no, it certainly is. It certainly is. As a historian as well, when you were doing this analysis and when you were interviewing these people and looking at these these sources, what... In what way did you find uh, the active members and those who had been active in the provisional IRA were drawing on the, the long history of Irish republicanism? Or was their justification for the provisional IRA and was their justification for um, the Troubles as a whole, was it more uh, situated in their own personal experiences rather than in uh, the history of Irish republicanism? My experience was that it was more the latter
1: than the former, and that it was to do with the particular combination of historical forces at a a significant moment. So for people who joined the IRA in 1970 or in 1971-72, it was very much the particular combination of historical realities at that point that they felt impelled them to get involved in the movement for those who joined in the early 80s likewise. Having said that, I think one of the great strengths the provisionals had was An ideological narrative of some richness which could make sense of the crisis as it unfolded so for example if you're a young nationalist working class man as most of the volunteers were in belfast in the early 1970s and you feel that the state is not legitimate or fair and you feel that the police and the army are being hostile sometimes violently hostile to your community and you feel that political representation is not working for you through peaceful methods there was a long legitimacy bestowing ideology of Irish republicanism, which could say, well, we've, we've told you this. If you look at the things that Irish republicans have been saying since the founding of the northern state in the 1920s, this is what we've been saying. So I think it, it was a kind of marrying of an ideological heritage with the immediacy of circumstances. I, I don't think the ideology on its own explains what happened. In other words, if, if it was the inheritance from... Wolf Tone and Patrick Pierce, right through to the IRA, you have to explain why it didn't emerge in the 1940s or the 1950s. I think it arose at a particular moment because of a combination of forces in the crisis in the north in the late 60s, early 70s, and the state response. But I don't think the ideological inheritance was irrelevant. I think it was something which gave a legitimation, a texture, an inspiration, a sense that struggle could achieve things. And I think for all of those reasons, The ideology was enabled to enrich the current crisis and to make sense of it. But I don't think the IRA, any more than any other movement, was basically an ideologically driven one. I think if you go to many churches and ask people about the doctrines of their church, they might be sketchy on some details. It doesn't mean they're not true believers, it just means that it's not driven by a particular ideological precision. I think ideology makes sense of things which have other roots to them as well.
0: Yeah, and one of the the aspects that you focus on, and you mentioned it when you were uh, talking about your studies in Oxford, that is you focus on the socialism uh, of Irish Republicanism. Now, it's not the, the primary focus of the book, but it's something that, it, that is present there. And it's something that uh, for many of our listeners who, who wouldn't have the in-depth knowledge of, the, of Irish Republicanism wouldn't see as one of their, their key goals. What way did you, uh, did you feel um, from talking to these individuals? How primary uh, was the, the role of socialism for, for many of the people who were involved?
1: It's a really good question, John. Because I think that in a couple of periods of IRA history, the 1930s and then the 1980s as well, the movement did take a significant turn to the left. I, I don't think the IRA was ever primarily a socialist organisation. I think republican nationalist separatism was the main focus of the movement and the thing which pulled it together. And there were many people in the IRA. In the early 20th century as in the later 20th century who were not left-wing but if you look at the arguments that were being proffered by the ira in the 1980s for example if you look at what people were reading and quoting within but also to some extent beyond the prisons as well there was a distinctly left-wing quality to it and i think this isn't irrelevant it was overwhelmingly a working class or lower social group movement it was a movement that was at war with a capitalist state uh during the 1980s it was at war with a thatcherite very right wing capitalist state. It was a movement which felt that social justice was part of what it was trying to bring about, and it was a movement that was millenarian. There was a sense that the whole of the society could be recast in new forms, and that when Ireland did become free, as they believed it would do, when Ireland did become united, the nature of that society was something which could be defined anew. So while now we look at the past through the lenses of the death of communism, something which even Eric Hobsbawm marxist that he was recognized had died and we assume that the downplaying of socialism is something which makes it seem like it was limited i think if you reclaim what the moment felt like in the 1980s there was a very profound and sincere commitment not only to social justice but to socialist change and to there being a class-based tinge to what they were doing and i felt it was important to reclaim that i think we, we owe people in the past the dignity of getting their views right, and I think it was important at a particular period for the IRA. Now, significantly, Sinn Féin now, though a leftist movement, has played down much of the very hard-left politics that the 1980s would have involved. But I do think it was a big part of the story of that period, and I wanted to flesh that out in their own words.
0: Yeah, no, I think it is a really important part to to focus on, and it gives this broader understanding, a much more nuanced understanding into, into this group, rather than just looking at it as a group where they're fighting against their definition definition of who the British are and to get the British out of uh, of Northern Ireland as well uh, and it, it, it gives that that broader understanding for us within this you uh, within this book you you talk about um you you go through the troubles as a whole as as well as um, as well as generations previous to that as well And one of the things you hear um, from people within Irish republicanism and people who have, who've left uh, mainstream republicanism, is what you're seeing uh, with the Good Friday Agreement of the late 1990s, they said, well, you could have achieved that in the 1970s with with what was was on the table and what was going on there. Do you, with your analysis, do you buy into that? Do you think that that's a, a fair assumption? Or what would your reading of that be?
1: I think it would have been possible in the 1970s to produce the kind of deal that emerged in the 1990s and beyond, but I think that would have required two major changes. One would be that on all sides, including the IRA, there would have been a need for people to pursue compromise rather than victory. I think in the early to mid-1970s, on all sides there was a sense that people could actually win, whereas by the 1990s there was a recognition that probably some kind of compromise, some kind of stalemate was likely to be the outcome. I think the second thing is that the inclusion of groups like the IRA and their political representatives in serious negotiations really rested on that change in other words i don't think governments are able to get involved in serious negotiations with a non-state violent group like the IRA until they believe that until they believe that there's going to be a discussion around things which are realizable and, and goals that can be achieved or deals that can be done. So the British government had contact with the IRA for a long time. As you know, they were in touch with them throughout most of the troubles. But for most of that period, what the IRA said it would settle for was too high for any British government to give. By the time you get to the peace process period, there's a sense that everybody has come down a few rungs, as one of my interviewees put it. So it's not that I'm saying it could have been achieved easily in the 1970s, but I do think one of the paradoxes and one of the terrible aspect of the Troubles is that when you look at what did seem to end the Troubles in the 1990s and beyond, it's far short of what most people were killing for in the 1970s. And I think it's certainly far short of what the IRA were killing for in the 1970s. So a big fulcrum of change was the IRA recognising that the violence wasn't producing what they had hoped and thought it was going to produce. And having reached that realization, I think the realm of negotiation and possibility was transformed. And slowly and jaggedly they were brought into discussions in a way that meant that they were able to contribute significantly to a new kind of politics. And I think largely a much more benign kind of politics. The question then for people is, well, if that was the case, Was the IRA campaign necessary? Was it justified? My own view is that the violence on all sides wasn't justified. and I think we could have sorted out the troubles before they started. But it's easy to say that because, looking back, you don't have the sense of the belief in the efficacy of violence that was shared, not just by Republicans, of course, but by the British state at times and certainly by loyalist paramilitaries, too. Could we have achieved something like this earlier? I think we could. Would that have required actors, including the IRA, to take a different view of what was possible through violence? I think it would. And regrettably, for all the lives lost, there was for too long a belief that violence would produce victory, which I don't think was ever likely to be the case.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, excellent point. It's uh, it's something that that really, really, um, this the hindsight can be great in looking back and saying, okay, changes could have be been made there, or. Uh, we could have achieved different things at different times, but it's yeah, you needed so much to be to be going for it, so much to be happening at that time. One of the things that you would hear um not uh, one of the things that you would hear people generalize about uh, the North Northern Irish conflict is that it was a sectarian conflict. And from from talking there to your um to to your interviewees and from doing your own analysis how how large a role did it was sectarianism playing um, at different stages? Um, and do you feel that this was potentially exaggerated um, e- externally from Northern Ireland at times?
1: I think the levels of sectarian violence vary according to how we define sectarianism and also according to period. So, if by sectarian violence we mean that people are targeted purely because they're of a different religious background, I think most IRA violence was not, in that sense, sectarian. In other words, I think their violence was targeting, for the most part, not always, but for the most part, people who were seen as targets instrumental to their struggle, people who represented the British state, people who were political opponents of them. Having said that, two counterpoints would be, first, that if you define sectarianism as involving a conflict between different groups which have political and religious identities which are rivalrous and which are fighting for power, then everything that happened in the north was sectarian because it was between a broadly Protestant unionist British community and an Irish nationalist community which had Catholic identity and Catholic roots. I think it's also true that at times the IRA, like other groups, did engage in violence that was manifestly sectarian. So in the mid-1970s, there were in South Armagh some killings which were grotesquely sectarian by loyalists but also by the IRA. So my answer to the question would be in some ways the sectarian nature of the Northern conflict, that it's overwhelmingly about nationalisms that are rivalrous with each other but that have religious roots of different kinds means that none of us can escape being charged with sectarianism having said that the casual way of looking in and saying this is just sectarian violence misunderstands the fact that from the IRA's point of view they could legitimately claim that it's about nationalism it's about state power it's about political legitimacy and that while they did engage in some violence where they would kill protestant civilians as protestant civilians they killed far fewer people in those circumstances than they could have done the IRA could have gone into protestant bars much more frequently than they did and just spray them and kill protestants they tended overwhelmingly not to do that doesn't make their violence any less murderous. Us, but it does mean that it has to be understood I think as primarily nationalist violence albeit in a conflict which can't really escape its sectarian skin
0: yeah yeah I, I I could talk about the about this book and about you. I talked to you about Irish republicanism for the the whole podcast and beyond but uh, we need to get on to, to your other piece as well but before this one of the points that you make in the book and especially in your conclusion is that republicanism is not static that we need to be able to to see how it's changing, how it's evolving as well, and since the publication of your book, we've seen evolution in uh, the way that Irish republicanism uh, is approaching uh, their 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 end goals and their their overall uh, political status. And um, what do you think has changed? what have been the most significant changes since you published this book that could potentially go into an updated version of one was to come out?
1: I suppose the first thing is that the relationship between the IRA and their political party, Sinn Féin, has transformed from the IRA being the centre of gravity and power, with Sinn Féin as a mouthpiece in the early years, to Sinn Féin being the Republican movement, but with a little bit of muscle on the margins. And so the relationship of power has shifted, and I think that's involved a transformation in the way... They view political change so republicans in shin fein are still utterly committed to the idea of there being a journey a transformation a recasting of political relationships and legitimacy and state power but it's overwhelmingly non-violent which i applaud and it's also involving a sense of longer-term understandings of how this is going to happen, which I also applaud. And the center of gravity is in the movement in terms of Sinn Fein, rather than the IRA, which again, I think is a welcome development because it means they can be involved in political power. It means they can be involved in government. It means they can be involved in making decisions of a more normal, peaceful, political kind. Another thing, the point you make about change is absolutely crucial, I think, John. Because another thing is that, of course, over time, the identity of people in Sinn Fein is transformed. So there increasingly is a body of Sinn Feiners who were not involved, during the violent years. In other words, whereas in the 1980s, if you were talking to a Sinn Féine, you were talking to someone who was part of a movement that on a frequent basis was killing people. Now, many of the people who are important within Sinn Féin are people who are effectively peace-processed Sinn Féiners. They're people who've come to political maturity during a period when the Republican movement is essentially non-violent. So the movement has changed its texture. And here again, I think historical comparisons, though not neat, are important. So when Fianna Fáil took power in the south of Ireland in the early 1930s. They were seen by some people as being gunmen because some of the people who were becoming cabinet ministers or people who had been in the IRA, whereas over time the nature of the Sinn Féin Party just changes because the people who join it join it after a revolutionary period and it's largely and then increasingly and then utterly a peaceful party. So I think history changes sometimes for banal reasons because the number of people coming in at any particular period reflects very different conditions. And I have always tried to stress the possible fluidity of the movements I've studied. I think reading them as static, as bound by inevitability, narrows down our understanding of them, but also narrows down political possibilities.
0: Yeah, and we're we're actually speaking in in the days and the week after uh, Jerry Adams uh, being, uh leaving the presidency of Sinn Fein and Mary Lou Macdonald being uh, being the new president of Sinn Fein. This is it, it's the the brightest illustration of this, I suppose, that we have. And also, we've been we're speaking the days after. A group like O'Gleannaher and one of the violentist and republican uh, groups uh, calling a ceasefire, and this really wasn't that big news around um, uh, here in London. Anyway, it was bigger news, I'm sure, in, in Belfast. But it's it's a sign of the times of where things have gone that that these two acts are taking place at the same time, and it's the paramilitary violence, uh, the paramilitary ceasefire isn't really making the headlines as much as it would have in the past. So, with that in mind, like what? Role do you see for the the violentist and republican groups, especially groups like the New IRA and the Continuity IRA, who are still um, who still have, are taking arms again uh, in the name of Irish republicanism?
1: I think it's very hard to see them gaining large-scale support. I think it's near impossible to see them achieving any full-scale goals through violence. If if paramilitary violence is going to secure republican goals the provisional IRA were far more likely to do it than much more small and less well-supported groups would be able to do it. On the other hand, my reading of the relationship between Irish nationalism and the British state is such that I see no reason to predict that there'll ever be a fully harmonious relationship between all Irish nationalists and the British state while the British state has a hold on part of Ireland. In other words I think that there will always be some people who think that it's at least legitimate to think about violent resistance the difficulty for them is to see what they would achieve or to gain the kind of support that would mean that they could develop a campaign of anything like the strength of the provost whom I wrote about in my book on Struggle. So I think it won't go away completely dissenting republicanism or violent republicanism but my reading at the moment is that the condition don't really exist for it to become a major vector of political or historical change. And as you suggest, it barely made most headlines that a group had decided to desist from violence at the moment because people assume that it's gone to the margins of of political life and political reality. I think there will remain some kind of fractious, violent, obstreperous republicanism, which is occasionally violent, but I don't see it as being mainstream to the nature of politics in the north of Ireland in the immediate future at all.
0: And so do you think something like Brexit will have a much more significant effect than than anything that this would have?
1: I think Brexit has already had the effect of removing much nationalist acceptance of the political deal in the North. For many nationalists, the border had become effectively something which you could live with because it was a porous border, because it was something where you could an ambiguity about it. I think the possible reintroduction of a serious border in Ireland is a real problem for many Irish nationalists, and I fully understand that. I think many nationalists have moved to a slightly harder position on their nationalism because of Brexit. I think also many nationalists in Ireland are understandably angered that, for the most part, English votes are going to drag northern nationalists out of the European Union, which they wanted to be part of. So in that sense, I think Brexit has produced an ossification of political polarization here in the north and I think that's unfortunate. I think for unionists it's an unfortunate development because it means that the nationalist acquiescence in the deal which secured Northern Ireland within the UK is more shaky now. Many nationalists are very angry about this. I think that that kind of change probably has had a much greater effect in mobilizing nationalist anger than anything which any dissident Irish Republican group has managed to do in recent years. And I think thankfully most violent groups pursuing political change through killing in the north now have very little support and I think that's born of the fact that most people think that violence even if it were justified is unlikely to bring about much success politically
0: yeah yeah and it's it it's an interesting few years ahead for Northern Ireland in relation to to brexit in particular but hopefully as well by the time that this uh, podcast comes out there will be a government in place in Belfast that will be able to to help see, uh, see through the see the country through these uh, these tricky times. But anyway, we in the recent years. You have moved on. Your research has expanded to look at terrorism in general. While you're you're very well known for your your work on um, on Irish republicanism and Irish nationalism, your focus now is has broadened out, and it we can see this in your two thousand and nine piece terrorism: how to respond. In this you talk about two types of terrorist problems. You talk about the practical problem and you talk about the analytical problem. Could you explain to our listeners exactly what you meant by this?
1: Yes, it seemed to me when I published this book, Terrorism, How to Respond, that there was the issue of how people like ourselves study and explain and write about terrorism and the analytical understanding of the phenomenon is therefore one part of the challenge. But I think related to that is the issue of how states society, citizens, the media, organisations respond to terrorism. And my argument in the book is that really, while it's not the case that excellent analysis or excellent academic understanding will solve policy problems, it is the case that any failures in analysis or gaps in analysis make it more difficult for politicians, for policymakers, for civil servants, for societies to respond effectively. So the attempt with the book was to write something which was practically oriented, to say, if we look analytically at what terrorism is why it occurs, why people join up, what it achieves, how we should respond to it. What are the things which somebody who's in a policy world might draw out of some relevance or hopefully of some insight, which is of use in day-to-day decisions which are made in that analytical but also practical realm. So the idea was that the analysis and the practical dimensions are not unrelated to one another.
0: Yeah, I'm... Within this you, you break the book up, you, you talk about a need to um, to for to understand the definition, to engage with that, to look at an explanation and to look at, at history as well. And on that first point in relation to the definition, you talk about terrorism being as subspecies of warfare, if I if I recall. why was it that you thought that you felt it important to emphasize this connection to warfare? And what do you feel that looking at terrorism in that way how does that shape the way we respond to, to terrorism?
1: I suppose the, the first thing is that it stresses the normality and rationality of those who engage in it. So if you're looking at warfare, we all find the existence of warfare regrettable because of the terrible loss of human life. But we accept that it's something which normal people do and people feel occasionally that violence is something which you need to ju- do to achieve precious or otherwise unobtainable goals. And I think if we see it as that, we avoid the danger, which is sometimes there in public discourse, of reading terrorism as something which is beyond explanation, something which is beyond normal human activity. And I think that that reading of terrorism is unhelpful. So putting in the framework of warfare makes it seem more normal and explicable, though no less regrettable. And the second thing is that in explaining why terrorism occurs, it does seem to me that for most of the groups that I've studied and have engaged with analysing, there is at the heart of their justification for their violence, and however much one disputes their justification, there is at the heart of it what I would see as a kind of Clausewitzian approach, which is at the heart of war as well. Clausewitz's great book on war points out that the essence of warfare is to try to make the war more uncomfortable for your opponent than it would be for them to give you what you want. And in that sense, it seems to me that what Hamas have been involved in, or the PLO, or the FARC, or ETA, or the IRA, or for that matter, Al-Qaeda and ISIS, what they're involved with is exactly that process. They're trying to use violence in such a way that their opponents will find the conflict more painful than it would be for them to give these groups what they want. And I think in that sense, at the heart of terrorism, however awful however repellent the violence is at the heart of terrorism is something which is also there in war which is that there's a strategic centrality a judgment that violence is essential to producing necessary and precious goods and i think playing that up is not popular i find quite a lot of people don't like you saying this because it makes terrorists sound more normal and that's a a very unpopular view still which i can understand but it does seem to me that unless we recognize that we can neither understand terrorism analytically nor respond to it effectively in policy terms yeah and
0: it's this this goal that you were talking about earlier on—that you need to take uh, the emotions out of our analysis and be able to to look at it uh, in a in a non-emotional analytical way—and with this, from this analysis, one of the points that you bring up um, is that potentially we need to learn to live with terrorism. And um, what did you what did you mean by this? So.
1: It- Again, it's an unpopular point, and I've not been thanked by many people for saying it, but it does seem to me that many politicians and many of us uh, in public debate, uh, there's a tempting notion to say, we'll get rid of this awful thing after a bomb goes off, after there's a shooting, people say, we'll just get rid of it. The historical reality is that terrorist violence will outlive anybody listening to this, and it'll outlive any of their children, any of their grandchildren. And recognising that learning to live with terrorism is a more realistic goal, containing it is a more realistic goal than getting rid of it It does seem to me to be important. And in all honesty, there are many things which are appalling in our societies which we don't assume we're going to get rid of. We don't assume we're going to get rid of illness. We don't assume we're going to get rid of crime. We try to minimise it. We try to diminish it. We try to contain it. We try and offset its worst outcomes. And it seems to me that when politicians in particular make pronouncements which say they're going to get rid of it, it makes it easier for terrorist groups to have some kind of success. So I quite understand why, for example, example, last year at his inauguration, President Trump talked of eradicating radical Islamist terrorism from the face of the earth. But the truth is, he's not going to do that. And all Islamist terrorists have to do in order to gain a kind of victory now over the United States is still to be in existence when President Trump is no longer president, which is undoubtedly going to be the case. So I would rather that politicians and societies set realistic goals. I think it's realistic to think we will face terrorism. It's realistic to think we can contain and limit it. It's realistic to think that societies will endure despite the terrorist threats that they face. It's not realistic to say we're going to get rid of it, and I think we shouldn't pursue unrealistic goals as societies or as states. It's very tempting to say that you can do so, and obviously, I'm an academic, I'm not going to get elected as a politician, and I recognise the reasons behind that, but it does seem to me that a more pragmatic politics is one of containment, rather than one of extirpation or eradication.
0: Yeah, and this... This actually frees us up a lot more. It's if you do have the the end goal of we're going to eradicate it all. You're as you said, it's never going to be achievable. But if you're able to to define what success is uh, in countering terrorism, and it's not going to be eradicating all terrorism, it's a lot more achievable, and you can make greater inroads there as a result.
1: I th- I think you can, and I think in truth, many voters. Are probably more open to a pragmatic honesty from politicians than some politicians think. I think people know that, for example, if you can make it clear how limited a threat statistically there is, if you live in the United Kingdom, for example, if you live in the United States, the chances of your being killed by a terrorist is statistically negligible. That doesn't make it any less awful for those who suffer appalling violence at the hands of terrorists. But it does mean it's something which we should see within a certain proportionally understood context. And I think in terms of how we spend resources, in terms of how we view security, in terms of how we live our lives, it's important to recognize the proportional nature of the threat and to respond to it in ways which limit it rather than sometimes I think overreacting. States sometimes exaggerate threats exaggerate the danger overreact and make things worse and i think that's something which we've seen many times historically and i'd rather that we move towards a more realistic and a more patient and a more proportionate way of responding as societies
0: Okay, and with this in mind, one of the things that you state is that the most serious danger currently posed by terrorists is probably their capacity to provoke ill-judged, extravagant and counterproductive state responses rather than their own direct actions themselves. Do you feel that this is reality across all uh, terrorist campaigns and across across history as well? Has this been the, the most serious danger or is this a more modern day occurrence?
1: I think it's the most common thing that you see. I think Sometimes terrorist violence is part of some other kind of grander conflict, a civil war, and that might have a more existential threat in itself in terms of what it can do and the changes that it can bring about. But overwhelmingly, the historical cases of terrorist groups suggest that their own violence is unlikely to cause as much destruction and change in historical direction as is the state response to it. So if you look at uh, the terrorist atrocity, which was the spark which led to the conflagration of the First World War, or the much larger terrorist atrocity of 2001, which was the prompting of a very different American engagement in international affairs with the war on terror. In each case, the terrorist violence caused human suffering, which was appalling, but the state contingent responses to it were what really changed history. So I suppose my argument is that however difficult it is for governments for states, for societies to respond in a calm way. A calm response will mean that terrorism has less of an effect in changing history rather than I think sometimes a hasty, sometimes an exaggerated, sometimes an overconfident reaction as if you can make things go away or you can sort things out in an abrupt or sometimes rather brutal way. And I think the events after the atrocity of 9-11 rather bear this out. I think one of the reasons for the emergence of ISIS was the relationship between the 9-11 atrocity the war on terror, the war on terror being used as justification for Iraq, the chaos in Iraq, the transmogrification of al-Qaeda in Iraq into ISIS. In other words, the emergence of ISIS was something which had its roots, amongst other things, within the particular response to the 9-11 atrocity by the United States and the allies. That doesn't mean that there's any justification for ISIS atrocities. What it does mean is that one of the consequences of the way in which the West responded to the nine eleven attacks was to produce a range of violence, which was of anything much greater than that which even Al Qaeda had been able to generate.
0: Yeah, yeah, and within this book, uh, terrorism: How to Respond, you draw a lot on the Irish case study, uh, and you do that within does terrorism work as well? And you bring in other case studies as well there, but the the example of the Provisional IRA uh, is is dominant there as well. Um, how generalizable are the lessons from uh, from northern ireland what do you feel are the key things that uh, that can be drawn from from how the british and the irish state dealt uh, with the provisional ira and how um, we have an understanding of this uh, this paramilitary group
1: it's a good question because obviously each terrorist group is ultimately unique and i think there are going to be differences Provisional IRA are different from Hamas, Hamas are different from Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda are different from ISIS. Having said that, I think that one of the challenges which I've tried to address in my recent books is to look at those things which are family resemblances between cases. And I think they do exist. For example, in the British state's response to the IRA, there was a recognition that this is going to have a long-term Quality to it rather than something that would be open to a short-term fix. There was a recognition that transgressing your own legal processes and mistreating prisoners and mistreating suspects was something which backfired on the state. There was a recognition that an over-reliance on military methods in the early 1970s in Northern Ireland was counterproductive and actually stimulated more terrorism. I think in different contexts, all of those, all of those elements, for example, are there in what we might read in the post-9-11 response. I think there was too much of a sense of we can sort this out and sort it out quickly. There was too much of a reliance on the military, and there was a transgression of the way in which prisoners and suspects were treated, which backfired on the state. So, in that sense, I think while Al Qaeda are very different from the provisional IRA, had there been a more sensitive and nuanced understanding of what the British state had dealt with in Northern Ireland, there would, I think, have been a wiser engagement in dealing with the challenge which Al Qaeda posed after 9 11. And in that sense, what my book, Terrorism How to Respond, does, is try to set out some of the things which I do think are, if not generalizable, at least echoes heard across enough cases for us to think seriously about them when we're responding to a particular terrorist crisis. ISIS, yes, it's different from al-Qaeda, but in some ways the need to learn to live with violence, to look at root causes, to avoid an over-militarized response, to recognize the importance of intelligence, to recognize that there's a need to coordinate activity within and between states, all of these things are as relevant to dealing with ISIS as they were for the Spanish state in dealing with ETA or indeed for the British in dealing with the provost.
0: Yeah, no, and it's a it's a really good book and one that it's really accessible as well. It's a it's um it's one that you can you can read in a couple of a couple of sittings and it's it's something that can be useful for academics as well as practitioners as well. So it's definitely something I'd highly highly recommend. When we were talking about the work of Martha Crenshaw, you were talking about her dealing with these tricky, tricky questions and Put, not just the tricky questions but the questions that we all have to have to to deal with an answer and you deal with that in uh, this last piece that we're going to talk about you deal with one of the most controversial I suppose questions and that is does terrorism work why did you uh, burden yourself with this this tough topic uh, for this book and how did you approach uh, trying to answer this question
1: what i try to do always is write the book which if someone else had written it i'd want to read and it did seem to me with does terrorism work that it was a question which we needed to approach historically perhaps more than had been done. Much of the very good work that's been done on terrorism work has been a political science approach or an econometric approach and I think I wanted to say let's look at this as an historian would look at it with long roots, with an attention to first-hand evidence, with a scepticism about overarching theory, with an emphasis on contingency rather than inevitability and with an attention to particular historical context. So it was a book which I felt someone should write. It is a controversial question as you rightly say John and it's a difficult one because if you see to be saying that terrorism works rather more than people like or that rationally terrorists might be justified in trying to use it. You seem to be saying things which are very unacceptable for many people, and I I respect people's concern. However, given that overwhelmingly people who engage in terrorism do it because they think it's the only thing that will work or the thing that will work best, it seems to me we have to look honestly at whether or not they're right in making that claim. And I don't think it's enough to say that working has to be defined purely in terms of getting your headline strategic goals. If you judge humans against that standard, virtually nothing that we do would be judged as working at all. Do businesses work? Do governments work? Do churches work? If you look at just the headline goals, they tend not to be things which are fulfilled by most human endeavours. But obviously working can mean more
0: Definitely does it. Definitely does. And one of the you talked there about how you rightly needed to define what working was, and not just saying that it's it's about achieving the the overall aims of the group, but looking at partial strategic victories, tactical successes, and inherent rewards of struggle. And the one that stands out for many people in reading it is that that last one, inherent rewards of struggle. What did you mean by this? What were we? What were you talking about there?
1: Well, it seems to me that. Many things that we do when we engage in serious choices in life, there are lots of reasons behind it. So you might justify something in terms of its ostensible strategic goal, you might think of it in terms of the things it's officially going to give you, but there might be other things you get from it. So if that's a career choice or whatever, there may be aspects of the inherent rewards of a job which aren't the reasons that you say you're going to go for the job, but they make a difference. It seems to me most people involved in terrorism are very normal. So whether or not someone involved in Hamas actually achieves the strategic central goal of destroying Israel and establishing an Islamic Palestinian state, it seems to me that they might enjoy some of the emotional satisfaction of gaining revenge on enemies. They might enjoy the comradeship of struggle. They might enjoy the psychological rewards of feeling that they're part of something which is righteous. They might enjoy the communal and individual sense of moving from humiliated deference to proud resistance and defiance they might enjoy the sense of struggle being purposeful for some people there might be money in it there might be renown in it there might be fame in it and i'm not saying that these are the reasons why terrorist groups exist but what i am saying is if you look at the sources closely if you interview people if you look at what they've written if you look at what they've said again and again there are things which do seem to offer rewards excitement exhilaration comradeship sense of purpose sense of duty sense of trying to achieve something which matters and being proud of it, I think all of those things have to be part of why people become involved in it, maybe even more why people stay involved in terrorist groups. And I think that to avoid that is to dehumanise people and to make them seem as if they're not like the rest of us. And I think it's important to recognise that they are. It's not a popular point because obviously people involved in terrorist groups don't want to hear you saying they might get something out of it financially or emotionally, though I think sometimes they do. It's not a popular point with states because it makes people think that maybe you can get some rewards out of joining a terrorist organization but clearly the large numbers of people who have been involved in terrorist groups throughout history have got something out of it otherwise they wouldn't have become involved and sustained involved in it and some of that seems to me to involve the kinds of things that i'm talking about emotional Psychological, social rewards, which seem to me to be as evident in terrorism as they are in many other areas of more peaceful human life.
0: Yeah, and it goes back to the the point in the last piece: terrorism, how to respond. If we have this understanding about the inherent rewards, um, and knowing that it's it's sometimes beyond an ideology that might what might keep someone involved, it changes the way we respond as well. It's not just about countering an ideology; it's about looking at that. Overall, uh, overall what it means to be involved in the terrorist group as well. So we need to, to have that understanding in place. Um, and when you're dealing as well with a question of does terrorism work, it's not just defining about uh, what working means, it's also about defining of who does terrorism work for. And why, like, what way did you approach this question? So who, when you were tackling the, the case studies, who were you looking about at terrorism working for?
1: Well, one of the interesting things is, of course, terrorism might work for people other than those for whom it's intended to work. So you might find, for example, that some of the violent resistance against the British Empire, which used terrorist methods, might have worked for other groups in other countries which didn't have to use terrorism because the British Empire decided to disengage before violence emerged. In other words, you could get beneficiaries who are other than the intended beneficiary. You might also find that within an organization, if you look at an organization like ETA or Al-Qaeda or the IRA or Hamas, you might find that there are, because there are many different people involved, it works better for some people than for others. Some people can have a good war, some people can have a bad war. And I think it's important to recognize the heterogeneous nature of the experience of being involved in terrorism groups. So what I wanted to do was to be honest about the things which you might get as outcomes. And rather than seeing it as something which has a uniform effect, it seems to me it's likely to be very varied. And it might vary over time. You might get people who benefit many years after a terrorist struggle because the nation which has partly been freed because of the violence has been a nation which has been therefore cast in, in the nature of the Israeli state in a way that subsequent generations can enjoy. So I wanted to be honest about who the beneficiaries might be. And I suppose also I wanted to be honest about the fact that this is likely to emerge as the complex rather than a simple pattern of outcomes.
0: So with the, all this in mind and you've you've picked some really interesting case studies to really focus on you focused on al-Qaeda, the Provisional IRA, ETA and Hamas. Um wh- how did you why did you pick these four actually uh, to begin with? What was it about these four uh, that were lend them to to this analysis?
1: I suppose I wanted to pick groups which weren't all Islamic because the focus of the literature so much post 9-11 has been Islamic, but I didn't want to shy away from that. So I chose two groups which did have an Islamic background, but were utterly different. So Hamas and Al-Qaeda, obviously very, very different organizations. And I wanted to be honest about addressing those. But I also wanted to bear in mind the fact that very much violence, which we call terrorism, has emerged from nationalist struggles. And therefore, the Basque and the Irish cases seem to me also to be powerful. They are cases which have long histories, but have a contemporary resonance. They're, They're for anyone who's listening to this within living memory there has been a relevance of these groups but also they go back a very long way and therefore it's something which seems to me to balance the contemporary with the historical any four cases that I chose will be open to people saying Know what about these other cases? Yeah. In the conclusion, I do try to look at a number of other groups, but it seemed to me that they reflected something which was contemporary and historical and which reflected the current preoccupations we have with Muslim groups, but didn't purely focus on that because I think that would be unfair and ahistorical.
0: Yeah, no, I think uh, it would. As you said, any four that you picked, there would be someone saying, why not this group, why not that group? And you do bring that all in uh, in the final chapter as well, where you're looking at FLN, you're looking at Hezbollah, you're looking at Irgun, uh, you're looking at a variety of, of, of groups there. Um, but I suppose in talking about this book, I should ask the question, does terrorism work? And if so, who has it worked for? In what examples are there if that's the case of terrorism working?
1: I suppose my argument would be that the, the four layers of terrorist success, strategic success, partial strategic success, tactical success, and inherent rewards. Of those four levels, it seems to me that the highest level strategic success is very rare. I think you could make a case that Jewish terrorism of the 1940s did achieve an acceleration at the least of the bringing about of a central strategic goal. I think you could make a case for the FLN in Algeria also. But overwhelmingly, I think terrorist groups end their campaigns without achieving their central strategic goals. Where I think they have greatest success is at the second level, partial strategic success, where they either get a kind of diluted version of what they want or more commonly achieve secondary goals revenge sustenance of resistance i think those are more common i think the third level of tactical success or operational success or gaining publicity or undermining opponents i think that's more common still and i think for some members there are always inherent rewards so the pattern if it is a pattern which i don't think is uniform but it's frequent enough to be seriously addressed the pattern seems to be something like this that you very rarely get what you most say you're doing the violence to achieve but you can often get something which subsequently can be allowed to be a justification in hindsight so i think if you look at the case of uh, look at the case of al-qaeda's violence did they achieve their strategic central goals they certainly did not did they achieve tactical operational success regrettably the 9 11 attacks were tactical operational Success of high order? Did they achieve publicity unquestionably? Did they undermine their opponents significantly in all sorts of degrading ways for Western society? Did they sustain resistance? Unfortunately, they did. So I suppose, in that sense, my answer to the question "Does terrorism work?" is that terrorism turns out to be rather like most things that humans do. You rarely get the things which you most most want as headline goals, but you can achieve diluted versions of them or secondary ones. You can have tactical successes along the way, and for some people in the organisation, there can be rewards. While obviously, for many. The others there will be costs and in that sense terrorism turns out to be like many businesses it turns out to be like many peaceful political movements it turns out to be like many organizations and one of the reasons the book has been slightly controversial is that it does present terrorists as a rather normal bunch and i think though that's a painful conclusion it's an important one if we're going to be looking at how we honestly anal- analyze terrorism but also how we effectively respond
0: to it yeah no i completely agree to it is a, a hugely important conclusion and sometimes the most important 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 conclusions are those most painful ones as well to deal with i think it's a really important book i think it's one that that deals with uh, these questions that we need to be talking about and actually i think it's an interesting uh, sister piece to the to erica chenoweth and maria stefan's piece on nonviolent resistance as well and the comparing that with violent resistance so and you you uh, refer to erica maria's piece in in your book as well so i would again greatly uh, urge any listener to to pick it up and to to have a read of this book so richard You've, I've taken up a lot of your time, but there's just one more question that I finish all of the, the podcasts with. And I'd like to, to get a broad understanding of where you're coming, where uh, researchers feel the state of terrorism research is at the moment. So do you, how do you feel the health of terrorism research is uh, today?
1: The three points I'd make about that, I suppose the first one is I don't accept the argument which some people like Dr Mark Sageman have put forward that there's a stagnation. I think actually it's a very vibrant field. There's been a huge amount of development. And while Mark is right that we haven't answered all questions that we'd like to answer, I think there have been a lot of questions that have been well answered. And so I think the field is, in that sense, vibrant. The second thing is, I think that the post-9-11 transformation of the scale of of terrorism research and in particular the americanization of it the growth of interest academically in terrorism uh, in the last couple of decades since 9 11 in the states has transformed things and i think that has brought great strength in terms of some of the brilliant scholarship that's been involved but probably there's a danger that it biases the literature towards those things which seem really pressing if you're living and working in the United States. I think in that sense, we've got to beware the Americanization too much in the sense that while American scholarship has been extraordinarily influential, there are many parts of the world where terrorism's of a kind that aren't particularly interesting to Americans, uh, but are important, need to be studied. And I think in that sense, the European tradition is important, but also the study of terrorism around other parts of the world. And I think that that is one The third thing is is the disciplinary nature of it, and I referred to this earlier on, and I think it's an important point. I think every single academic discipline has equal importance in bringing unique insights. But I think some disciplines have engaged in it much more than others. What I'd like to see is a more genuine dialogue between different disciplines so that, for example, people who are trained as theologians, uh, people who are trained as literary scholars, obviously people like myself who are trained as historians, I would argue that is important for us too so that all of us are involved in the debate so that the things which we can each learn from each other's unique methodological insights are ones which are in all of our bibliographies. It's a big ask because even reading within one discipline on, on this subject is a vast task for graduate students, for example, but I always say to my own students, try to read across as many disciplines as possible because the things which each discipline brings will avoid some of the gaps that other disciplines have. So I suppose those those aspects of it, I, I think it's a vibrant field. I think the Americanization and the growth of post-9-11 studies has been great, but I think we need to ensure that it's not the only voice in the room. And I think we need to make sure that when we organize seminar series, when we organize departments in universities, when we organize our bibliographies and our research debates, we are genuinely multidisciplinary rather than just paying lip service to it. And I think that if all of that is attended to, then the field can can gain from the tragedy of terrorism continuing to be important in society.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point to to finish up on I'm on that point of not just looking at uh, the american analysis of it as great as it is i would highly recommend all of our listeners to go back to a previous episode when i was interviewing uh, dr mike boyle about uh, his upcoming book non western responses to uh, to terrorism it's um, it's something that we really do need to to focus on in the future but richard um, thank you so much for for uh, being on being today's guest on talking terror uh, I hope that all of our listeners got as much out of this as I did if you want to uh, go to, to find out more about these pieces that were talked about there are links to each of these these books that were discussed uh, on Richard's profile page on the talking terror website uh, that's uel.ac.uk. uk slash te or C be sure to tune in next week where I'll be uh, talking to a former colleague of mine and a former colleague of Richard's dr. Donald Holbrook of Lancaster University. But until then, goodbye.